Hey guys, I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show, you can become a contributor at patreon.com slash words for granted. For just a buck a month, which is less than what we all pay for bad cups of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. If you contribute a little bit more, I'll even send you your own Words for Granted mug. If Patreon isn't your thing, but you'd still like to help keep the show on the road, you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash words for granted. Um, just a quick note about the audio for today's interview. After I finished recording the interview you're about to listen to, I listened back to the audio track, and there was this low, loud buzz throughout the whole thing on my end. Um, I don't know how it happened, but since it was an interview, I couldn't go back and re-record the episode, so... I worked some audio editing magic, and I've gotten it to a point where my end of the interview is listenable. Uh, my voice kind of sounds like I'm a flight attendant talking through an airline speaker, but trust me, it sounds way better than what it was. I think you'll be able to get past it, and with that, I hope you love this interview. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. This is the second episode in our series on American English, and we're going to be taking a break from our usual historically-oriented narrative. Instead, we've got a special guest with us here today, Lynn Murphy. And I think it will very quickly reveal itself why Lynn is just the right person to talk about this topic. Uh, hi, Lynn, and thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Hi, Ray. Thanks for having me. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Okay, well, I am a professor of linguistics at the University of Sussex in England. I've been here for 20 years, and during that time, I've been experiencing the differences between my American English and the British English that's spoken around me. And so because of that, I've headed my research in that direction. I've been writing a blog since 2006 called Separated by a Common Language, and um, I've recently published a book called The Prodigal Tongue, The Love-Hate Relationship Between American and British English. Mm. Yes, it's a, it's a wonderful book, uh, and I strongly encourage all of our listeners to go and get it, and I think you will want to after this interview. Um, so you, you, you would say that your interest in the different varieties of uh, English spoken by different nations, which you call nation-lects in the book, that was a byproduct of uh, your professional endeavors. That's something that happened organically, right? Yeah, I mean, before I moved here, and even the first few years I lived here, most of my um, research was about word meaning. Um, but if you're listening to words all the time and thinking about words all the time, you're going to start to notice dialect differences. Mm. Okay. Um, now, at what point did you uh, decide that you wanted to become a linguist, or what was your first aha moment where you realized, oh, linguistics is really cool? And the reason I ask this is because, as my listeners know, I am in no way a professional linguist, and by the time I had encountered ling uh, linguistics, um, it was you know late enough into my life where I had to accept that the most I would ever be is an enthusiastic autodidactic amateur. So I'm always interested to hear, you know, people who are professionals, at what point, um, you know, at, at, at what point in your life did you realize that's what you wanted to do? 
Well, when I was in high school, I studied a lot of languages, but mostly because I discovered I was kind of good at it. Um, and when I needed to apply to colleges, I thought, I don't know what linguistics is, but it sounds like it might be up my alley. So I just applied to schools where I could study linguistics or study Chinese and took one, you know, my first term taking both of them, and I dropped the Chinese very quickly and uh, just went linguistics all the way. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I've, I've actually I've short shared my story on the podcast just once before, uh, where I was at a friend's house, and he, he had an art history uh, textbook in his bathroom, just like some, some toilet reading. And I opened up to a random page and I saw that there was some Renaissance painting uh, and the, the name of the painting had uh, the Latin word passio as in the title. And then there was a footnote that said passio actually uh, meant uh, suffering in Latin. And that made me think, oh, uh, this, this word for suffering in English has come down to mean passion, which is you know, significantly different, and that just started this um, rabbit hole of etymology and word history and historical linguistics and then linguistics proper, just just on my own. That's kind of how I got into this. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so anyhow, um, right off the bat, is there a correct form of English according to you, and why or why not? No, there are forms we like and forms we don't like, but that doesn't make them correct or incorrect. And in terms of British versus American, you know, there are more accepted versions in each country, um, but it's not the case that one country's standard would serve the other one very well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that makes it makes sense because language is not some divinely ordained prepackaged thing that's handed to us we learn it through experience and my experience as america as an american versus a, you know the experience in britain versus you know what people were experiencing 20 years ago or 20 years from now it makes sense that how we communicate will change um okay so one of the first things you discuss in the book is the british media's frequent claim that americanisms are corrupting British English, and these Americanisms include words, phrases, punctuation. Um, Why would you say is the British media preoccupied with preserving British English as it is? Well, I think it's, America is a threat in various ways to Britain in terms of, you know, Britain used to be the, the, you know, empire over which the sun never set, you know, it's, it's not within the historical story that um, Britain likes to tell itself that it is, you know, minor to something else. But of course, America is much larger than Britain. It's more economically powerful. um, And therefore, it provides a threat in terms of who owns the English language. Um, And and since, you know, the name of the language English, you know, is the same as comes from the name England, you know, you'd, you'd understand why people might feel a little bit of ownership over the language that bears their country's name. Mm. Um, I'd also like to point out to our listeners, which is something you point out in the book, that these British media claims of corrupting Americanisms often use completely false evidence in order to make their claims. Yeah, I mean, very often the the examples they use aren't actually American. Um, 
very often they, you know, either they're, they're slightly made up, they've got the Americanism wrong, and therefore it can't really have been taken over Britain if people in Britain don't know it. Um, or maybe it comes from somewhere else. Maybe it's British to start out with. Um, you know, all sorts of things go on there because language is a very complicated thing. Um, and there is a sort of knee-jerk reaction in a lot of the British press and some British thinking that if it's new and you don't like it, it must be American. Mm. Uh, which leads me to my next question. Do you think these uh, claims are done in ignorance, bad research, or with a malicious agenda, or some combination of all of them? I think it's mostly the first two, you know. So people are very confident in their own knowledge of their own language. You know, you think, oh, I don't say that, so that must be foreign. Um, but, of course, our own experience of our language is just a little bubble around us, you know, the language we've been exposed to so far and in our lifetime, and you really don't know where those words have come from. But nevertheless, people... People are very confident about language um, in ways that they shouldn't be. And what I found interesting when I moved to England, um, and before I really started thinking as a sociolinguist rather than just you know somebody who thinks about dictionaries and things, um, I you know was really surprised when I came over here and found that a lot of the rules that I'd been taught at, you know, in school in America as being proper English were not the way people use language over here. Um, and so that, you know, there is a tendency in America to revere the English in England and think, oh, they must speak more correctly than we do um, because the, the language name bears their country's name. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't always work that way. Mm. Um, and I guess... I should also make a note for our listeners who might not know, um, this British reaction to Americanisms is not new. It's not like a 20th and 21st century thing. It's been going on since the beginning. Yeah, I mean, already, you know, in the, in the 18th century, people were being suspicious of American sounds or American words. I mean, sometimes because the American words were words that were provincial words in Britain, so they weren't the best English um, in England, you know, according to the people who who made their judgments about these things. So, yeah, the, ever since the, the people started to notice the English separating, people were judgmental about it, yeah. Mm. I actually, I have a quote here, uh, which is apparently the first uh, British condemnation of American English from 1735. It's from some guy named Francis Moore, and he says... Savannah, Georgia stands on the top of a hill. The bank of the river, which in barbarous English is called a bluff, is steep and about 45 feet perpendicular. That's, uh, just thought I would, would share that. Uh, bar barbarous English is being recorded from 1735 yep. on yep. the British side. Um, okay, is there a most hated Americanism circulating in Britain right now that you've, that you've encountered again and again? I'd say the one people complain to me about the most is ordering things at a at a coffee counter or whatever um, with "Can I get a okay Can I Can I get a latte?" Um, that a lot of people hate that, but you listen to young people in Britain, and and that's how they order things. Mm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't think twice about that. Can I? People say, "Can I get a blank?" 
here all the time yeah. in America. Yeah. Um, so I guess that what you're, what you're implying is that the primary demographic of Britons that get worked up about this stuff are older people. Well, older people have more experience of a certain, Eng- you know, they've, they've lived with their ling- English for longer. And so they notice when new things come in. Whereas the younger people, you know, they've, you know, they've been saying awesome all their lives. They've been say, saying, can I get a coffee all their lives? Well, I hope they haven't been drinking coffee all their lives, but you know, <laughs> right. um, and, and so they haven't noticed yet all the things that actually have come over. And when new things come over, when they're older, they will notice them. But I wouldn't say that necessarily young people are completely accepting of it. I mean, you can, if you look at social media, you'll see lots of young British people being very rude about, you know, spelling color without a U or about, you know, the fact that Americans say math instead of maths, which is a a big area of concern for British people. So, um, so, you know, there are things that annoy people, but of course, the more experience you have of the language, the more you're going to notice. Yeah, it, it just, as an American, it, it just doesn't make that much, it's not an intuitive reaction to me, like to, to defend this sense of pure English or pure British English. What, 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 what does that even mean? Like using mm. mostly Anglo-Saxon derived words, you know? No, the, cer- certainly not, because, you know, most of the words people are trying to protect are, uh, are French, you know, or a lot of them are French. So, you know, if you look at something like, should you say eggplant or aubergine, you know, America's gone with the good old Anglo-Saxon form and uh, Britain hasn't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it's a strange thing because the, the entire premise of this podcast, word, Words for Granted, is that you can, you can never take the narrative back too far. Um, and when you do take the narrative back far enough, you realize that the original English doesn't even remotely resemble modern English or even Middle English, so it's it just is like a hollow intellectual argument, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, a, a good example of that is you cannot say, for instance, that American English came from British English because the English that is spoken in Britain today is nothing like the English that the American colonists took over. Um, you know, all the things that we think of now as British, like saying pass instead of pass or saying far instead of far, you know, those are things that, that English people didn't do when the pilgrims went over. So, you know, there is this, this, whole, uh, disc, or this whole myth that somehow the English in England is, is more pure or is more original than American English, and that just, you know, isn't the case. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure if you mentioned this in the book, but um, these, you know, this the, the pure British English defenders are they also against linguistic innovations that take place on British soil, or is it just Americans uh, that they hate, or are they just likely to blame everything on uh, Americanisms? I mean, I think you can't generalize too much. There are a lot of people who just like to be grumpy about language change, and they'll be grumpy about it wherever it comes from. There are other people who are who see Americanisms as a particular threat. Um, so, you know, there's a bit of, a bit of everything. Yes, and of, of course we are speaking generally here. It goes without saying that none of this is anti-British in principle. We're just discussing 
general attitudes toward language. Um, so on that note, let's flip the coin. What would you say is the general American attitude toward British English? Well, I think a lot of the myths that people have, people in Britain might have about British English, Americans have too. There is a tendency to revere the English of England as being somehow more proper or more historically accurate or uh, more refined even. And so, um, yeah, I think both, both sides buy into those myths a little bit. Um, and I think there is a fair amount of American insecurity about the way we speak. And part of that goes down to um, the, you know, the kinds of prescriptivisms that, um, that you were talking about with English teachers, you know, that there is an idea that there are better ways to say, to, sorry, better ways to speak. Um, and particularly Americans worry about things like vocabulary and grammar, whereas British people tend to worry about accent more. Um, and, and so that does give you a sort of sense that, well, we don't always know what all the rules are and maybe we, you know, maybe somebody else is doing it better than we are. Having said that, um, attitudes toward British English in America have become less reverent over, you know, the past century because, you know, America's become more distant from Britain, both in, in time, you know, we're no, it, we're further away from having been, a colony, um, but also in that, you know, there's been huge amounts of immigration from other parts of the world in America. There isn't the same sense of that English was our people's English before because a lot of, a lot of people in America don't have ancestors who would have spoken English many generations back. So, so the, the tie from the American side is feeling a little bit looser. How... How can we put into perspective the role of the internet? So again, thinking about how Britishism, uh, sorry, Americanisms coming, going into Britain and vice versa. The the internet's been huge, in and in particular, it's allowed for a lot of traffic going the other way, as well as traffic going from America to Britain. So you know, during the earlier twentieth century. A lot of the vocabulary traffic or phraseology traffic was going, you know, from America via Hollywood, via soldiers coming over to Europe, you know, all sorts of things were coming from America to Europe. And things that were coming from Europe weren't necessarily coming from Britain in America. Um, and so the traffic was mostly one way. And since we've got, you know, streaming television services and YouTube and the Internet and and also, you know, other cultural phenomena like Harry Potter, we've got a lot more access to current British English in America than we have in, you know, decades and decades and decades, you know, probably since before the Civil War. So, you know, what's been interesting is to see that these things are going both ways. I wonder, um, during the 60s, during the British invasion, like that five to 10 year period when like all the most popular bands on the planet were British, that seems like a blip in the 20th century where yeah. some, some British, I, I, I don't know if there are like specific, ex specific examples of British, Britishisms coming in during that time, but that seems like a moment in history where 
yeah. we might have had that in America. Definitely. Um, I mean, I, I cannot at the moment think of any examples right off the top of my head either. But um, there are, have definitely been periods in America where more attention has been paid to England and more stuff and sounds have been coming over from England. But, um, but yeah, it, it, that, it was going in cycles. And now we're definitely on a high cycle due to, I'd say, British television British publishing, things like that. Yeah, I would say for me, probably my first direct encounter with British English where it felt like this was something different than the way I speak was Monty Python. I'm yeah. sure a lot of a lot of Americans have that. Yeah, and I grew as well. Yeah. I grew up with Monty Python on our PBS channel and then it moved on to being Are You Being Served being played all the time. Um, and so you had those things on PBS channels seeking out a certain demographic, you know, certain people would watch those things with certain senses of humor, but now it's just, you know, you can watch Sherlock, you can watch Doctor Who, you can watch, um, comedies, you can watch thrillers, you know, so many people are into British mysteries. Um, it's no longer just on Masterpiece Theatre. You know, it's now it's now on Netflix, on BBC America, and all those other places. Um, so, out out of curiosity, do uh, Britons pin you as American? Immediately, <laughs> although, well, actually, I should say they're they're very cautious. They'll they'll a lot of people will ask first if I'm Canadian, because you don't want to <laughs> ask a Canadian if they're American. So, um, and also because my, you know, you'll, you'll hear it in my voice. I've gone native in a few ways in, in my speech after living here for 20 years, you know, saying things like 20, um, instead of 20, um, you know, so, so there, there are things about me that don't sound exactly American anymore, but, and so when, you know, the last time I got my hair cut in America, they said, oh, are you from England? Um, just by hearing my tease. But, you know, nobody in in England would say, oh, are you from England? Or what part of England are you from? They they immediately peg me as North American. Yeah, because if if I may say so, to me, you don't sound American. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You sound something. I'm I'm Uh, mid-Atlantic. Yeah, mid-Atlantic, exactly. Um, So did you deliberately... uh, change some of the way that you speak uh, after moving over in order to be understood better? There are some things that I changed. Uh, the the T's I probably got, I lived in South Africa for four years before I lived in England. And because I was teaching very um, mixed groups of people, you know, not everybody's first language was English. I felt a need to be very clear with my T's in particular and to try to say can't instead of can't. Um, I, I have never really mastered that, but I do try because that British people cannot hear the difference between can and can't a lot of the time because it's not the same difference that they're looking for between can, can and can't. But, um, but other things have come because, well, for instance, my, my vowel in hot you know, I come from a part of America where I should say hot, but now I say hot. Um, and that's because I was mocked <laughs> f- 
for uh, for how I said the word box once box um, and 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 so you know I sort of I got a bit self-conscious about it and my my O began to move I'm sure my my A's in words like path have moved a bit too I mean I don't know how I usually say it but you know so I know some things have moved but they're not exactly southeastern English you can they people here can still hear the difference do you have one particular uh moment like like where you were discriminated against that that really got you well the, uh, feeling terrible I, I mean i don't nothing everybody always says things with a, a a a laugh right you know there's no sort of you know immigrant go home sort of moments um you know so my my 90 something year old friend mocked how i said box so you know i i shifted that that wasn't traumatizing um i mean i occasionally you know will have People say, you know, oh, an American teaching English language, you know, that's a joke. But, you know, it, it is a joke, you know, <laughs> it, it, they're, they're, they're saying it as a joke. So there's, there's, nothing, uh, been, there's nothing been terribly bad. Yeah, I, the reason I ask is because, um, so when I'm not doing this podcast, I'm a touring musician and I've spent uh, a fair bit of time in the UK and no one no one has ever said anything offensive or uh, derogatory to me and that just might be the nature of hanging around with artists and musicians mm. they might be more open minded than more provincial people i don't know but that that was my experience yeah i mean people are 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 not going to be mean to people's faces in the main um i don't know how i'm mocked when i'm not around <laughs> but you know people are generally generally willing to give you a chance all right um so most people listening to this uh probably know a few of the classic differences between british and american english like lift versus elevator and the o-u-r versus the o-r spelling and color and favorite um but you talked about some other differences like uh embedded in the cultural attitude behind certain words. And I think you use please as an example. Um, so when a British person uses pleased, please as opposed to an American person, uh, what's the difference there? British people say please twice as much as Americans do in any study that's tried to measure it. And when they say please, it's usually for really, really tiny favors, even if they're favors at all. So you get things like please accept my apologies, where you're not even asking for a favor, really, or giving your apologies, or, or please let me know if I can help you, where you're offering help. Um, so you get a lot of pleases. You get pleases, for instance, in ordering at a restaurant. And I know Americans will say, oh, I say please when I order in a restaurant. You know, Listen around you the next time you're in a restaurant. Nobody's saying please. They're saying, you know, I'd like the pizza. Um, so the pleases in, in Britain are frequent, but they're also tiny. And you use them to everyone. Whereas in America, and, and you don't necessarily see this when people are using please, but you, you get it when you look at a lot of data and you dig down to where are the pleases and where aren't the pleases. In, in America, please tends to be used more where there's a difference in power between the people. 
So either somebody who's got more power, like a parent or a teacher or something, um, speaking to a child or a boss speaking to a, a, an employee, they'll use please, and then th- in return, they'll be using the, the child or the employee will be using please upward to the boss. So please tends to be used in situations where the footing isn't equal. And so therefore it can sound, because it's used by bosses to their employees, it can sound a little bit bossy, a little bit urgent. You know, would you please do that? Sounds like you're, you're, you're getting impatient with someone. Or it can sound like you're begging them. You know, like, you know, I, I, I don't deserve to ask you for this. Please, will you do this? Um, so in America, it's a little bit more delicately used to signal some very slight uh, social differences. Whereas in, in Britain, you just use it all the time. You just never use it for anything big. Mm. Yeah, Th- that's incredibly interesting to me because I tend to use please probably more in the British way, uh, simply because I proceed from the assumption that everyone's having a hard day. Let's just try to make everyone's life a little bit easier. So I see. I think I overdo please. And, you, you might uh, overdo please for an American, but I would bet you anything you don't use it as much as the British. Yeah, p- perhaps Because not. if you did, you'd be sounding bossy a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, my, my own mother has pointed this out to me. She said, Raymond, you sound weird. You sound <laughs> corny. She's uh, New Jersey Italian, okay. so she's got that she's got that going on. You sound weird and corny. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, maybe I fit right in in Britain. So speaking of cultural attitudes that, that are embedded in the language, um, you talk in the book about how this these attitudes are not only in uh, particular words, but also how we as Americans and Britons view the English language at large. And you distinguish between a literate uh, tradition in America and a literary tradition in Britain. Uh, what exactly does that mean? Well, if you study you know, what's called English in Britain, what you study are books, what you study is literature. Um, you never learn, for instance, what a topic sentence is or how to shape a paragraph, um, which is something that you know anybody who goes to American high school or, you know, takes freshman composition in college has to learn. You know, we're always learning, you know, we memorize vocabulary and have vocabulary tests all the time and, and, and spelling tests and things like that, which is coming into Britain a little bit right now. But Britain doesn't have the history of that kind of teaching of English. And so, you know, what was important when America was being founded And when, you know, large numbers of immigrants were coming over who didn't necessarily speak English was for us all to have a common way of communicating in order to have a democracy. We tried to put all of our laws, you know, out in, you know, in prose so that everybody could see the laws. We've got a constitution that's written down. Britain doesn't. Um, And so, you know, there was this big emphasis on literacy as being a key to citizenship. And so when we talk about, you know, learning English or, you know, English class at school, we are talking about things like 
you know, learning grammar or learning how to write a paragraph or things like that. We're not always talking about reading Jane Austen. Whereas in, in the British tradition, there's very little tradition of teaching English grammar. Um, and as I said earlier, Americans tend to get uptight about grammar. British people tend to get more uptight about accents. And, you know, there is a, a reason for that. In America, we've got fewer different accents. Um, we're using accents to judge people for their social class less, but we've all learned these things about grammar that make us a little bit more conscious of it. Whereas in Britain, you know, those who were being educated, you know, in the 19th century say they were not, if they were learning grammar, they were learning Latin and Greek grammar. They didn't learn um, English grammar, except in Scotland. America took the Scottish education system more than the English education system. So there's a sense in England that, that English is just there. The language is just there. What's interesting is, is the literature. Um, whereas in America, there's more a concern about what is English? What is the English that we share? How do we take care of our English? I mean, of course, the United States um, has had a lot more spelling change than uh, Britain has. And, you know, that is partly because, you know, Americans are thinking about what can we do with our English? How can we improve our English? And really concentrating on the language in certain ways. Mm, yeah, I, I find that particularly fascinating. Um, would you say that in Britain this fosters some uh, myth of, you know, you either have it or you don't regarding good writing? Like, if you're not a good writer, yeah. you can't study it. Well, I mean, I think there is, I mean, there are people in, in American education who, who might believe that too, but there is a commitment in American education to at least trying, you know, to, to, to try to get everybody to write well. Um, and, and a big belief in, you know, that you can put down rules and people can, you know, help themselves using the rules that somebody else has, has devised for them. Whereas I do tell the story, I think, in the book of when I first moved to England and I was worried about my students writing and I asked a, a very nice colleague, I mean, he wasn't trying to be mean or anything, but I asked him, when do our students learn to write? And he said, well, you know, they'll pick it up. Um, and, and the ones who read a lot will pick it up better than the ones who don't and the ones who are clever will, will pick it up faster. And there wasn't a sort of concern that we need a vocabulary to talk about writing. We need a, a common uh, uh, idea of what a paragraph is or anything like that. Yeah, I, I suppose there is a vague truth to the idea that if you read a lot uh, and you're interested in writing, you probably will imitate those greater than you. But... That's not to say that we can't actually study the components of what's there. Yeah, well, I mean, if you read more, then you can start thinking about the components in ways that, you know, when you just think about the components in the abstract, it doesn't help that much. So, you know, there are a lot of debates about whether you can actually teach these things and what, what helps and what doesn't. Um, but, you know, there is, yeah, there are just certain cultural values that keep America going in the self-help direction that you can improve yourself you can always get better you know whereas britain isn't isn't that much of a can-do culture in comparison um okay so i think two two more things before uh, we wrap up uh one is a question i have for you based on my own experience in britain 
Um, so several years ago, I was in Brighton, and I was online uh, for a concert, and it was a gray, dreary, rainy, probably cold day, and I was just talking to a stranger on the line, and he used some word that I had never heard in my life, and it didn't even sound like an English word, like the cadence sounded uh, like I don't know what. Um, and then I had to ask him, what, what did you just say? And he's like, oh, yeah, British English word. And I don't remember it to save my life. And the only association I have is that he, I think he was using it to describe uh, either the weather on that day or the feeling that that weather creates. Do you have any idea what this word might be? Oh, it could have been a thousand things. Um, no, I really, it, it was a long word. It, it was odd. All I, it wasn't a compound. It had no familiar English components. It just sounded mm. like an alien word. I don't know. Oh, I'm never gonna <laughs> know. I, I, I will never find out what this word was. I should have just written it down. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, the last thing I'd like to ask you is what is your word of advice for all the people out there, either American or British, uh, who think that English needs to be saved thanks to this degenerate internet age that we live in, uh, what would you say to them? I'd say if you're getting uptight about English, if you're, if you're worrying about English, then you're not enjoying English. And there's so much English to enjoy. And even when you see things changing, even if you don't like the direction they're changing in, well, you don't need to go along with the change. You don't need to say it that way. But you can still you know, marvel at the way that English does that, that in spite of how many different people speak it, in spite of how many different, um, how, how much change the language has gone through historically, we still understand each other and we still do new things to the language. And isn't that, isn't that neat to use an Americanism? Sure. I mean, I've, in, in some way, we're preaching to the choir, or you're pre yeah. you both are preaching to the choir, because the premise of this podcast is literally how words change over time. And so, mm. yeah, but hopefully I, I your mean, words can help the audience explain that to their friends who are uh, hardcore uh, prescriptivists. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people get interested in etymology because they are looking for, you know, the one true meaning of the word, and they think that they can somehow get back to it. Um, but I think what's much more interesting is the, the journey the word's been on. Oh, yeah. In, in no way do I ever suggest that words have true mm. meanings through the show because they, they don't, clearly. Yeah, so yeah. You've, already, you, you, quite... you've already lost those listeners. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I've also lost uh, a handful of British listeners, I think, who were upset with the way that I pronounce Latin. Uh, <laughs> they, I... I don't know how many emails. I stopped counting at some point, but uh, there was a particular episode I did, um, and just Latin kept on coming up. And the next day, and then the day after, mm. and then the day after, I just got all these yeah. angry emails about not pronouncing that T, that I had to show Latin, the Latin, yeah. its respect. Well, you and I come from a part of the U.S. where those T's, you cannot pronounce them before an N. You have to say Latin. You can't say Latin. I, I can't even do it. <laughs> yeah. You know? and, and what's there are other words with that same, uh, with those same sounds like kitten. Kitten, mitten. Forgotten. Yeah. Yep. And no, no one wrote to me about 
the way I pronounced those words, but they got really worked up. They got worked up about Latin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, well. Okay. <laughs> oh, well. Right. Exactly. Oh, well. Uh, okay, Lynn, I can't thank you enough for coming on to today's show. Uh, can you remind our listeners one more time uh, where they can find you and your work? Okay. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm linguist, L-Y-N-N-E. G-U-I-S-T, and every weekday I do a difference of the day between British and American English there. I'm also on my blog at Separated by a Common Language, and the book is The Prodigal Tongue, The Love-Hate Relationship Between British and American English, or American and British English, depending on which country you buy it in, and in the U.S. that's published by Penguin. Okay, uh, wonderful. Yes, it's, it's a great book. I had so much fun reading it, and I really encourage all of you listening to go out and buy it. The big in big wireless provider stands for a lot of things. Big contracts, big bills, and big fees. What big wireless doesn't want you to know is there's a way to cut your wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month. Introducing Mint Mobile, the game-changing company that's taken everything wrong with big wireless and made it right. Mint Mobile makes it so easy to cut your bill down to just 15 bucks a month. You can even keep your old number, along with all your existing contacts, with any Mint Mobile plan. There's no more paying for unlimited data that you'll never use. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, plus free shipping on your Mint Mobile SIM card, go to mintmobile.com podcast. That's mintmobile.com slash podcast. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month and get free shipping on your Mint Mobile SIM card at mintmobile.com slash podcast. My little brother's friends have been camped out at our place for two days straight. Three. It's because of the Xfinity 10G network. Internet that can handle a house full of screens at once with like basically no interruptions. And it's only getting faster. When I was their age, internet like this was a pipe dream. You sound like my grandpa. Please go home. Introducing the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. Restrictions apply, not available in all areas.